Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I'm willing to guess that every one of you has access to one of the great tools that God has given us, and it's not your Bible, and of course it's not the Holy Spirit, because he is not a tool. We're going to learn a lot more about the Holy Spirit in just a few weeks. Pastor Stefan has just spent the last eight weeks masterfully taking us on this journey of knowing God more fully. The tool I'm speaking of is, is what we're going to talk about this week and next. We're going to focus on our side of the relationship with God. It's something, this tool, that we use every day. Usually, almost always, the first thing in the morning we look at it. It's a mirror. What do you see when you look in a mirror? What do you see? What do you see? Well, of course, the first thing you see is the outer you. Your skin, your hair. I'm always glad to come up after, after Irv because I look like I have more hair. Your face, your body. But if you look into your eyes deeply into that mirror, you'll see that there is actually an inner you. Your character, your heart, your soul. The outer you is what everybody sees. The inner you is invisible. The outer you is temporary. The inner you is eternal. That's going to last. There is one more thing you should know about the outer you. And Paul puts it like this. Outwardly, we are wasting away. And there's the news for this morning. What good news, isn't it? Sooner or later, old man wrinkles is coming for every one of us. If you have any doubts as to whether this is true, just take a look for a moment at the person next to you right now. From about the age of 25 on, certain changes start to kick in into the outer you. Your bones start to lose their calcium, and they start to get brittle. Your skin starts to lose its elasticity and starts to shrivel up. Age spots begin to multiply. You look down at your hands one day and you say, huh, these are my parents' hands on my body. You start losing brain cells at an alarming rate. If you're over 30, you lose about 3 million brain cells per day. And if we're all very, very quiet, you can hear some of mine getting lost right now. In fact, at the rate that I'm doing it, I calculated that I have only two brain cells left, and I think I left one at home this morning. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Other things happen. The weight starts to shift from the poles of your body towards the equator. Hair will stop growing where you want it to grow and boldly go places where no hair has gone before. I knew I was full-blown into the wasting away process when nose hair trimmers started to show up on my Christmas lists. Not a good sign. Did you know that in high-end hotels and in stores, they put mirrors in elevators and dressing rooms? but they keep the lighting down low. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know why they do that? It's because we want to see ourselves, kind of. We just don't really want to see reality. We don't want to look to see the work of old man wrinkle. Outwardly, we're wasting away, Paul says. I know some of you here and watching are not even 20 yet. And at some deep subconscious level, you're thinking, 
that will never happen to me. I will never grow old like you. Those of us who are older want you to know we understand because we thought the same thing and we love you. But it will happen to you and frankly, kind of looking forward to it happening. You can do whatever you want to the outer you. You can exercise it, you can starve it, you can rogain it, you can stretch it, you can lift it, you can nip it, you can tuck it, you can tan it, you can dress it, but one day it will just be very expensive worm food. One day it will. Old man wrinkle will wait you out. The outer you is temporary, but the inner you, ah, the inner you is eternal. It's your being that will never cease to exist. Your spirit, the inner character, the real you, is in the process of becoming something. It may be something unbelievably good or something unimaginably dark, but you are becoming something on the inside. That something is what God sees when he looks at you. And that is what matters most to him. It's reflected in the scripture in many places. Here's one example. One time God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint the person who would become king over Israel. He sent Samuel to the home of a man named Jesse. God said that this future king would be one of Jesse's sons. Samuel sees one of Jesse's sons who is a really impressive guy. In fact, there's a bunch of them. And he says, surely this is the man. Forget a six-pack, he's got a carton. He's got abs on top of abs, hair, muscles, ruggedly handsome. It has to be him. But God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. I love this verse. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at what? Outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And of course, the one chosen is the least of the sons, the youngest one, the shepherd boy, David, who, interestingly enough, becomes known as a man after God's own heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Our society fawns over people whose outer appearance is judged to be attractive, as if they have done something to deserve that. A recent study proved that daycare workers consistently hold, smile, and coo at babies judged to be more attractive than they do at babies that are judged to be unattractive. Attractive people, on average, make more money than people who are judged not to be attractive. Our stories teach us this from the time we're really young. The prince is not drawn to Cinderella by her great personality. Snow White and Sleeping Beauty both had men fall in love with them while they were comatose. Didn't they? This is true. That's the way it happened. There are two singular events in your life at which everyone tries to identify you. The essence, really, of who you are. The last is when you die. The first is when you're born. Now, you may not be too conscious of this from your perspective, but no sooner do you get over all that trauma when suddenly there are a myriad of strange, blurry faces peeking in at you, and there is one question that gets repeated from room to room, from hospital to hospital around the globe. They peer in at you, give you the once over, and then they ask, who does he most look like? Who does she most look like? And this is serious stuff, 
Because at first it's hard to tell because neither parent looks like a shriveled up prune. That doesn't stop the speculation though. You can, you can sure see his dad in him, can't you? Or she has her mother's eyes or her mother's hair or whatever. But the truth is, until you've grown up a bit, you look like nothing else on earth. A little worm wrapped up in a blanket. Except, of course, for my grandkids who were beautiful from the day one, right? Yeah, yeah. There just isn't a whole lot there to distinguish you when you look what you look like, which features you've inherited from your parents at that point. By the time that baby is a couple of years old, it starts resembling somebody. And people say things like, you can sure see his dad in him, can't you? That apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. So I've got a question for each of you this morning. It's the same question that's been haunting you since that first day you looked up at those strange faces. Who would you... who? Who would, who would later come to understand, who you would later to come to understand they were your relatives, those strange faces, like it or not, they posed this question. Who do you look like? Who do you look like? Either of your parents, a sibling, perhaps a famous person. I've had people actually stop me in public and say I look like Billy Crystal. Now, I don't get it. I don't see it at all, personally. I think I look more like Bob Hope, right? Here's, let me give you a profile. Yeah, that's, that's, that's Bob Hope. Just about everybody has thought of this somewhere along the line in their life and had someone compare their looks to someone else. So now it's your turn. I'd like to give you an interactive moment here for just a moment. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, or across the two meters, depending on how you are seated or how you're watching, and ask them, or rather tell them, what do you think you look like? Who do you think you look like? Just tell them for a moment here. Go ahead, go ahead, do it right now. Don't be bashful. They don't have to agree with you. Just let it fly. I'll give you a second to go both ways. Who do you look like? Well, a few laughs, that's good. And not, nobody's getting up and leaving. There was no insults, that's also good. The Bible tells us, though, the answer to that question. Do you know that? The Bible tells us the answer to that question. Who we most look like. It says that every person, whether you know God or don't know God, every person bears the reflection of God. That we're created in his image. That we are, in fact, walking snapshots of God. You and I are living reminders of God. The Bible tells us our creation is unique, that we alone are able to be in a spiritual relationship with God, that we were created for that express purpose. In being created in his image, we have been given the unique calling and ability to think and plan and communicate and the power and the talents that he's given us make a difference in this world to partner with God in bringing the world to the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and we can choose to live in it. He tells us that not one of us is a random thought, a random occurrence, but rather that we were created wonderfully. And Sheldon just read from us Psalm 139. And we're going to take just a little bit of it here now in the message uh, paraphrase and we're going to read it all together. Whether you're watching this or whether you're with me here, just kind of walk with me through these verses here, okay? You shaped me first inside, then out. 
You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God. You're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. Inside and out. Did you catch that? You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made. Bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book. You watch me grow from, from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. Paul describes us as God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. His masterpiece. Something that he has lovingly, painstakingly poured himself into for a purpose. But then God went even further. Out of his great love, God gave his son Jesus to the world. Jesus came to earth to show us how to live this life well. And then in one magnificent act of courage and love and forgiveness, which we celebrated last weekend, he took all of the junk of our lives that was in the way between us and God and in taking them all on himself and dying for us, wiped our sin slate clean. God gave his only son so that he could in turn adopt all of us as his children. Do you see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God? These are powerful words because the message is that God is into you. He's into you. And if you know him, if you belong to him, that defines who you are. It defines where you're going. It defines what you're becoming. It defines your identity. That's our identity, John says, and that is what we are. The astonishing thing here is how much God is into each of us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Literally, that phrase in the original language means, what country is this kind of love from? It's an exclamation of astonishment, of surprise. What foreign land? Where has this come from? We don't know this. We would say, what planet has this love come from? Have you ever been on the outside of a relationship looking in? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been left out or left alone? Have you ever been wounded by someone badly or, or even been the wounder? Have you lived with regret, wondering, will they ever forgive me? Will they ever take me back? You might be able to grasp just a little bit how lavish this love of the Heavenly Father is for us because we are no prize for God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were proud, overbearing, arrogant, greedy, vengeful, deceitful, lustful, malcontents, God said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. I want you in my family. When we didn't give God any reason to even like us, he was into us. Friends, God is for you. He's nuts about you, crazy about you, more than you know, more than you can understand, more than you can ever comprehend. And that fact defines who you are. John starts his letter by describing what it is to know God. And then he uses the metaphor of being in the light to describe what it is to abide in Christ. But then for the rest of the letter, he uses a different phrase. He uses the phrase, born of God. 
When a mother gives birth, a child is born into a family. It's their born identity. It's not original to John, though. He heard it used by someone else. He was there when Jesus stayed up half the night having an encounter with an affluent guy by the name of Nicodemus. In the eyes of others, Nicodemus was a success. He made his mark in the marketplace. His portfolio, his retirement plan, everything mapped out. But there was something in his life that was missing. There was a hole. There was an emptiness inside of him. And Jesus looks into that inside of him, and he can see what that hole is. And he says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born into a family, my family. No one sees the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Then Jesus connects this idea of being born again with God's lavish love. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. So who are you? Who are you? You are treasured, much-loved children of the Most High God. You are a treasured child of the Most High God. That's who you are. There's not a single life circumstance, not any deed you've done, not anything that can keep this adoption from taking place when you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose him as your Lord and Savior. My favorite scene in all the Bible is that scene in Luke 15 when the father is waiting for his wayward son to come home. He looks down the road, and the idea here is he's been looking. He's continually looking. He hasn't left his perch. He's waiting. He's looking down the road. You just wonder, in a sense, don't you, how many days he's been looking down the road. How many days he's just been sitting there looking out the window. Then one day in the distance, he sees his lost son returning. His, this dad drops everything and starts to run. And what you need to know about what would be astounding to people who are hearing this story back in the day when Jesus is telling it is that no master of the house, no father in this situation, no lord of an estate ever, ever, ever ran. It was unbecoming. It was to be beneath yourself, to, to run, to, to get, you know, go with your robes flapping, running all over the place. You just, it wasn't done. But what does this father do? He starts off for the hundred-yard dash. He just takes off, and he's running for his son for all it's worth. My son was lost, but now he's found. My child is home. Friends, I don't think most of us have any idea what it means to God when we come home. There are some parents with us today who have had a prodigal child, and you know what it's like when they come home. There's no way of describing it. Others of you have a prodigal child right now and you dream about the day when he or she would walk through the door and what that would mean to you to just even one more time put your arms around them. How valuable are they to you? Try to imagine then the rejoicing in the heart of a father when his son comes home, when his wayward daughter comes home. Friends, I don't think we have any idea what it means to our Heavenly Father when we say, God, I choose you. I receive the lavish love you have for me. By what Jesus did on the cross, you offered adoption 
to me and I choose to become your son, your daughter, to become the treasured child of the God of the universe. It's my born identity. It's my born again identity. That's who I am. The Bible tells us that this issue is settled. Romans 15, 7 says Christ has accepted you. It doesn't say Christ will accept you as long as you go to church every week. It doesn't say Christ will accept you as long as you promise to be perfect or follow the Ten Commandments. No, you're accepted because it's based on God's grace and not your performance. Many of you have asked Jesus into your heart and life. You've stepped across the line. You're on God's side. You've asked God to bring you into his family. You've accepted Christ. But have you ever realized that God has accepted you? God has accepted you just as you are because of his grace. The Bible says God has chosen you. You've been chosen by God himself. How many of you have ever been involved in a tryout of some kind? Might have been for a position on a sports team, part in a drama, part in a musical, or maybe even uh, in a position you were vo being voted on for. How about even more simply, how many of you have ever been picked for teams from a group? Remember at recess or after school and two popular kids, how do they always get to be captains? But they are of the baseball team or whatever, and you're really wanting to get chosen by the good team and not so much by the bad team, but even more so, you're praying, please don't let me be the last person to be chosen. You know that feeling of, oh, I don't want to be the last one. I'm the reject. Everybody else has been chosen except me. What does that say about me? We, as a family, had our fair share of these, particularly in the realm of selections for baseball teams. For many years, it was part of the ritual of spring as our sons, both of our sons, tried out for their respective teams. Every year, we'd watch them, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, watch them nervously go to practices until the teams were chosen. One year, our eldest, Matt, tried out for the provincial youth baseball team, after a number of the, uh, practices came the big day. Excuse me for just, oh, here, here's a chance. I just, I'm utterly thirsty. <laughs> then, thank you, then came the big day. <clears throat> Cuts were to be announced. From an invited field of 75 kids, only 18 would be chosen. At the end of the day, I watched from across the field as each boy had a personal interview with the coaches. It soon became apparent that as the boys left the interview, they either turned to the right to head to the parking lot with slumped shoulders and home, or to the left to await further instructions from the coaches. They were the chosen. Each boy hung back, dreading the moment of truth. I watched in surprise as some of what I considered the more talented players made their way to the parking lot. Some would pass by me, trying vainly to look unaffected, unconcerned. I became completely absorbed in the drama. I found myself starting to count the number who had turned to the left to be part of the team. Only 18 would be on the team. The number climbed, 12, 13, 14, and then it was Matt's turn. As a dad, I found myself in a dilemma. I knew how hard Matt worked for this, but the decision ultimately was not up to me at all. He was to be chosen by another. There was nothing either of us could do but wait at this moment. I was already thinking about all the cliches to give him if he turned to the right. You tried your best, Matt. Gave it your best shot. You put it all out there. Left it all on the field. 
Maybe they were looking for a specific role player, filling a specific need. Maybe they didn't want a Christian guy who could be a positive influence on the team. Who were these guys anyway? And what exactly did they know about baseball in the first place? Why my grandmother could... Well, you, you, you catch the drift. Matt came out of the dugout. I'm trying to gauge the lightness of his step, the angle of his head. Is he squinting? Or, well, you know. He reaches the crossroads. He makes a little head fake to the right. No, he didn't really, but he told me later he thought about it and turns to the left. What a relief. He had been chosen. Of course, this is mostly an hereditary thing passed on from father to son. Just saying. Okay, okay. This is a tough crowd. Not in my case. There was definitely a generational skip there. Something happened because I was the one. I was always the one. I was the scrawny little one who, in a whole group of kids lined up to play, would be one of the last few chosen. I always liked to think it was because I was so small they couldn't see me until all the bigger kids got out of the way and got chosen. If I hadn't had a friend who was often the captain, I would have never made, I'd probably still be standing there. See, there's no pain like rejection, but on the other hand, there is no gift like being chosen. And when a reject or someone who is left alone or is is set aside is chosen, is chosen by someone, a life is changed. Love confers a kind of chosenness on the one who is loved, doesn't it? Love whispers, I choose you. I choose you. I will be on your side. And for people with misshapen spirits and crooked hearts and lopsided souls, this is life. I choose you. Being chosen involves four factors, three of them positive, one not so much. I usually start with the the negative, you know, the lima beans, so I can get to the dessert. But in this case, I'm going to start with the positives. When it comes right down to it, the first is... When I am chosen, I am seen as unique. All people are pretty much alike. How did I get chosen? In the midst of this, though, each human abhors the idea of just being a number, right? And cries out. We all cry out to be noticed, to be special, to have something different from the rest. We're unique. Being chosen means there was something about us that made us to be chosen. The second is, when I'm chosen, I'm recognized as someone who has something to contribute. Not only am I unique, but I have a gift that will make a difference. I have an ability that will help the team. Somebody who is chosen is worth having around. I have value. I am appreciated. I have something to offer. The third factor, and maybe the most basic and important in being chosen is, when I'm chosen, it means somebody wants me. I am no longer unconnected, isolated, alone. I am desired. I am wanted. I belong. When God chooses us, he imparts all of the good implied by the choosing. He chooses us because he's made each one of us unique. We are all to be part of a body and add that one special uniqueness that is ours. He should know what that uniqueness is. He created us. He knows each of us are different. That was part of his design. He chooses us because we have something to contribute. He wants each of us to make a difference in the world around us. But most importantly, he chooses us simply because he loves us. Not only have we been chosen, but we have been picked to the team by the one who has already won the game. Hallelujah. 
It doesn't get any better than this. In the world that we live in, the term chosen has a fourth implication, though, that is not present in the heart or the choosing of God. To be chosen in our world almost always means to be chosen at the expense of someone else. To be chosen in our world means that you are better than or superior to, that you are the favorite and the others who didn't get chosen are not. Will I be chosen or rejected? Will I make the final cut? Will I be selected for this position or that promotion? Let's face it, in this world, your perceived self-value goes up in direct proportion to how many others were rejected for the same spot that you ended up filling. In Matt's case, 18 were chosen for the team. 57 others who had already gone through a selection process were rejected. Here's the beauty of God's selection process on the other hand. It's open to anyone and everyone who accepts Jesus as their savior and team leader. And there is no limit to how many can make his team. To put it into terms that the Bible uses, to be one of his children, to be one of his family. There is absolutely no limit. There's no competition. There's no scarcity. There's no rejection of others so you could be picked. There's already millions that have been chosen to the team and room for countless millions more to be adopted. But let's be honest here. Being chosen does the value you put, does, does, makes you start to feel good. Does, it, it can make you kind of like bump the value on yourself. I was chosen by Jennifer. You have no idea what that means for me. I know most of you can't figure that out, and frankly, neither can I. But I didn't deserve her, but she chose me. It feels good to be chosen when you're chosen for an award, a promotion, a special recognition. The Bible says you were chosen by God. It's just a gift, not because you deserve it, but because of his grace. Keith Hernandez was one of the fa favorite and one of the baseball's top, top players while he was playing. He's a lifetime 300 hitter, which means about a third of the time he got a hit when he came up to, the, to bat. He won 11 consecutive gold glove awards, which means he was a top-ranked defensive player. He's won the most consecutive of any first baseman in baseball history. He won a batting championship. He won the MVP award one year. He even won two World Series with his teams. Yet with all his accomplishments, he has missed on, out on something critically important to him, and he wrote about it. He missed out on his father's acceptance and recognition that he had actually accomplished something, that he had value. One day, Keith asked his father, Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. What more do you want? And his father replied, Someday, son, you're going to look back at that and say, I could have done more. Some of you today are still trying to earn acceptance from someone. In the back of your mind, you're hearing, you're never going to amount to anything. And you're thinking, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to prove it to them. And you're still reacting to them rather than responding to a God who's already offered you to be on the team. I've lived with this myself, and I have come to learn that if you don't get your parents' approval or acceptance as a child, in all likelihood, you're never going to get it. 
In all likelihood, they're never going to say, I approve of everything you do. I accept you unconditionally. My parents never approved of me becoming a pastor. Let me say something else, though, even more important. You don't need it. I don't need it. I'm living proof. You don't need their approval to be happy in life. The church is proof that there are plenty of other people who will accept you and love you and not judge you and not hold you to a standard that there's no way you're ever going to live up to. If God accepts you, then frankly, everything else pales by comparison. But God doesn't leave it there. How much do you think you're worth? I'm not talking about your net worth. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, the chemicals in your body. By the way, someone's figured out that's like 585 bucks worth. I'm talking about your self-worth. Your value has no relationship to your valuables. The Bible says that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What's your value as a person? What do you value as a person or in others? You say, I don't know. How do you judge the value of a person? How do you judge the value of anything? Well, there are two things that determine the value of something. First of all, who owns it? And second, what is somebody willing to pay for it? Those are the two things that create value. First, the ownership determines the value of something. A story is told of a man who loved old books. He met an acquaintance who had just thrown away a Bible that had been stored in the attic of his home for generations. I couldn't read it, the friend explained. Somebody named Guten or something had printed it. <gasps> Not Gutenberg, the other book lover exclaimed in horror. The Bible was one of the first books ever printed. Oh my goodness, a Gutenberg copy of the Bible? That, must, that just sold for over $2 million. His friend, however, was unimpressed. Mine wouldn't have bought a single dollar. Some fellow named Martin Luther had scribbled German all over it. See, the fact is, the owner of something adds value to something that is normally just common, which brings up the question, who do you belong to? The Bible says when you come to Christ and you say, Jesus, I accept your gift of salvation, I accept your gift of grace, and you step across the line, God puts you in his family, and you belong to him. Imagine your value. All of a sudden, you now belong to God. That means you're priceless. You're invaluable. Back in the 80s, a Middle East oil sheik's daughter was kidnapped. Big headlines around the world were out there that said, we will pay any price because she's the daughter of the king. We will pay any price to get her back because she's the daughter of the king. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. God says, I will pay any price for you, and he did. You're not only acceptable, you're valuable. You belong to him. You are a treasured child of the king. The other thing that determines value is what somebody's willing to pay for it. How much is your house worth? It's only worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. You might have said, it's, I think it's worth 350000 But if somebody else is only willing to pay 250000 well, that's what it's worth, right? 250000 If I hold up a baseball card or a piece of art and I say, how much is this worth? It may be worth $5 or it may be worth $5,000 depending upon what you are willing to pay for it. How much was paid for you? Well, you've been bought and paid for by Christ. In other words, his own life that he gave for you. So you belong to him. 
The greatest ransom ever paid in the history of the world was when Jesus paid for your sins and you were bought with a price and God exchanged his own son for you. God said, you're valuable enough that I will give my own son to die for you. That's how valuable you are. If you want to know your value, just look at the cross. Jesus with outstretched hands says, this is how valuable you are to me. This is how much you matter to me. This much, this much is how much I care about you. You matter this much. And he willingly died on the cross because of your value to him. Study after study after study has shown that your self-esteem, your self-worth, to a large degree, the way that you see yourself and the way that you feel about yourself is determined by what you think the most important person in your life thinks about you. Perhaps you've heard the story of Johnny Lingo, a man who lived in the South Pacific. The islanders all spoke highly of Johnny. He was strong, good-looking, very intelligent, but when it came time for him to find a wife, people shook their heads in disbelief. The woman Johnny chose was a plain skinny, walked out, you know, hunched over woman and her, with her head down. She was very hesitant and shy. She was also a lot older than the other married women in the village, which did nothing for her value in that culture. But this man loved her. What surprised everyone most of all was Johnny's offer because in that culture, in those days to get a wife, you paid for her by giving her father cows. Four to six cows was considered a fair price for a wife. Man, I could have had a ton of them now that I think about it. I'm just teasing. The other villagers thought he might pay for two or even three cows. At the most, she's a three-cow woman. But you know what he did? He gave eight cows for her. Eight cows. Everyone chuckled and looked around and said, ah, what? You know, he's been taken for a ride. The father-in-law just took him to the cleaners. Some thought he just wasn't himself. It was a mistake. Several months after the wedding, a visitor came to the islands to trade with them and heard the story of Johnny Lingo and his eight-cow wife. Upon meeting Johnny and his wife, the visitor was totally taken aback, since this wasn't the shy, plain, hesitant, hunched-over woman, but one who was beautiful, poised, and confident. The visitor asked about this transformation. Johnny's response was very simple. I wanted an eight-cow woman. And when I paid that for her, I had treated her in that fashion. And she began to believe she was an eight-cow woman, and she's become one. I want to suggest to you that you make Jesus Christ the most important person in your life. He says you are an eight-cow person. You are an eight-cow person. You are acceptable. You are lovable. You are valuable. You are forgivable. You are capable. The bottom of the line is, who are you going to believe? Somebody else? Somebody else's opinion of you? Or the opinion of the one who made you? You see, it turns out our self-worth is actually not determined by us at all. God himself is our esteem engine. When you become part of God's family, your first day in Christ, you don't look like your heavenly father all the way. You're a little worm in a blanket. 
But each day that goes by, as we remain in him, we're transformed by him. And we'll hear, you know, more and more, you're looking like your heavenly father. You have your father's eyes. It's your born identity. So the challenge that I want to lay before us is this. And I'll give you a few moments to consider it and consider your responses now. But please pray and let God talk these things over with you. And here they are. Who am I really? Who am I really? What do I value? Frankly and honestly, do I spend as much time and effort and intention on my inner being as I do sprucing up my outer being? And when I look at others, do I see them as eight cow people? How do, what do I use? What criteria do I use when I look at others and value them? Do I see them as a treasure child of the Most High God? Or do I have other filters in place? I want you to take a few moments and just answer those for yourself. Who am I really? And what do I value? Fortunately, none of you at home could know what I was saying there. I forgot to turn my mic on. Perhaps some of you have some things that you need to confess. Perhaps some of you need to take this to God in prayer. I would encourage you to do that. But right now, let's stand and affirm our connection to the one who gave himself for us, the one who truly gives us value, the one who calls us his children and makes us treasured children of the Most High God. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204 204- 326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.